Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, I talk to the editor of Sight and Sound about their controversial and intriguing new list of the 100 greatest films of all time. We review the new version of Pinocchio landing this weekend on Netflix by the great Guillermo del Toro. And poet and writer Theo Dorgan chats about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well and you're not feeling too cold. By golly, it's been cold. But you know what? There's something very life-affirming about that kind of cold. Like, provided we're all safe and no one's, you know, not putting on their heat and all that kind of stuff. But when you walk out in the morning and you feel that blast of Arctic air, it's, it's as I say, life-affirming. There's something I enjoy about it. There's a lovely feeling of being warm when it's very cold. It's, it's nearly a nicer feeling than... than you know, being hot in the sunshine, being warm when you've, you're indoors on a cold day, you know, it, there's something in it. Anyway, I'm philosophizing about the weather. You're not here for that. I do hope you're well, though, weather notwithstanding. Now, in TV this week, I was watching this. I need to change. I need to give up everything. I just need to cut down. I divide everything by half. Can I have a top up? Ooh. I'll give AA a try. You're supposed to be in rehab. I escaped. Now, that is a clip from Rosie Malloy Gives Up Everything. You heard Sheridan Smith principally there. Uh, Sheridan Smith, a great actress, great comedic actress, great dramatic actress, was on this show earlier in the year for the new version of The Railway Children. Also in this is Ardell O'Hanlon and Pauline McGlynn. Much is being made of their Father Ted reunion. It has nothing to do with Father Ted, ostensibly, anyway. Rosie Malloy is a woman who is a functioning addict uh, with alcohol and drugs, and she's just about keeping it together and working a successful career. She goes to her brother's wedding and she lets the wheels come entirely off and he stops speaking to her. So she reaches a crossroads point. This is on Sky Comedy and started this week and uh, I think all episodes are downloadable at this stage. I watched the first two. I was kind of disappointed by this because Sheridan Smith, as I say, is great and she's entertaining in this, but it's almost like it can't make up its mind if it's a comedy or it's a serious look at addiction or it's not even trying to be a dramedy in that sense. I think the laughs are a bit too broad for that. Now, it is funny plenty of the time, but it's just, it seems like a bit of a missed opportunity because, as I say, on one hand, it's attempting to be, or it seems to be attempting to be a serious look at addiction. And then on the other hand, it's just trying at times to be almost farcical where she's doing literally cocaine off a gravestone in a churchyard uh, before a wedding. So, it's a bit all over the place. Uh, if you want a great comedy that's also a serious look at addiction, you do a lot better to check out Single Drunk Female, which I've mentioned before on Disney+. Plus. Also, Ardlo Hanlon, who's we adore. He's like a benign uncle to every Irish person, but his character is weird. He plays her dad, and it's it, 
it's borderline stage Irishman, I thought. He's this man who's been drinking and smoking all his life and is possibly the result of her addictions. But it it it's played a bit, as I say, stage Irishy, I thought. He's he's meant to be Northern Irish in it, and his wife is Pauline McGlynn, and they're fine together, but again, missing the mark slightly. So I'd higher hopes for Rosie Malloy gives up everything. So uh, let me know if you might have been watching it uh, this week. John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. I would give it two stars, I'm sorry to say. Papa! <gasps> it speaks! He's just a puppet! No, I'm not! I'm a real boy! People are sometimes afraid of things they don't know. I don't understand. Ah, we have found him, our star. Everyone shall love you and call your name Pinocchio. Pinocchio! Now, that was a clip of the new version. Yes, another new version of Pinocchio. This time, it is from the master and indeed a previous guest on this show. He said boastfully, Guillermo del Toro, Pinocchio, which lands on Netflix this Friday, the 9th of December, the big streaming release of the week. And I'm delighted to be joined now, not by Guillermo del Toro, but someone I haven't had on the show in a long time because she was always having another child. And I'm delighted to say she had that other child and she is back to review Guillermo del Toro. Sue Murphy, how are you? Hi, how are you? I survived. I survived the children. Yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Two and counting. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, I, I said uh, you reviewed Guillermo de Toro, but you're actually reviewing Pinocchio. So this is maybe a different version to what people are expecting. Tell us what's going on in this one. Yeah, it, it's a very different version. And I think if if you know Del Toro, you'll probably be you'll probably understand what you're expecting here. Like the director of Pan's Labyrinth, um, Shape of Water, he's weird and he likes being weird and he embraces it and he embraces the darkness that comes through things. But I think there's a there's an interesting thing with Pinocchio because he's obviously obsessed with the story and has been for a very long time. And the thing for him is that he wants to bring this story to everyone, but in a in a more realistic, dark way. Yeah. Um, so for him, the Pinocchio that we know from all of the old Disney films and the story and all that, he is the wooden boy in this, but he's capable of being human in a different way. Yeah. And like he, so he does a complete retelling of the story. So it's it's set in kind of World War One into World War Two. It's set in Italy um, under Mussolini. And Geppetto owns a little shop where he has a little boy. And you find out very early on the film, the little boy passes away and he builds Pinocchio from the tree that is over his grave. Mm. Um, So Pinocchio (laughs) ends up, obviously because he has has a wooden puppet that talks, ends up being this kind of circus act and he can't die. So he ends up going off and serving in the war. And it's it's a very... It's a very dark take um, on a film, on a, on a story. It deals very, very, uh, a lot with grief. Uh, grief seems to be the main main point of it. And I think this is a huge passion project for Del Toro. Um, yeah, so it's a very different, very, very different Pinocchio. 
Yeah. And the the Pinocchio, the boy himself, the the one he makes is like not it's so far removed from the Disney one or even the Robert Zemeckis one, which was pretty woeful earlier in the year. Like it's wooden, it looks like something you could have banged up in woodwork school yeah. back in the nineties. Yeah. Like it's yeah. really and when his nose grows, it doesn't grow in any it grows like a tree branch, tree. kind of scarily. Yeah. Like actually horror is it's funny when it, it started at the start. Um, it just came out, you know, and I was like, oh, God, what am I going to be getting myself? Because I like I won't say scared of Pan's Labyrinth, but it did haunt me a little bit, you mm. know. And I was like, well, is this just going to be a horror film? And then it kind of said Jim Henson Company. And I was like, oh, that's OK. It's a, like it'll be, this will be fine. This will be OK. And it actually is quite I don't want to say scary, but it is like there's a lot of horror element mm. in it. It is very, very dark. And he doesn't. He, exactly like you were saying he doesn't look like the Pinocchio like he's very rattly and kind of moves right like he looks like something you would see in a horror film yeah um and obviously that was a, a, a very conscious decision but a lot of the characters are like that as well like I mean the, there's Mussolini is in the film mm-hmm. there's uh, the people that try to take him away like you know Del Toro has said that he wants this to be a kind everyone can watch I wouldn't show this to a, a child under maybe 10 <laughs> like I think it's a very it's a bit of a tough watch in parts, you know. Well, funny you should say that because, and I hope Tusla aren't listening because I showed it to my 10-year-old and my 7-year-old. Uh, the 10-year-old really liked it though. Uh, and oh, okay. the 7-year-old was a bit, I just, maybe it's her age. I don't think she was scared, but she was distracted. But it's definitely horror, horror, horror. Like it really yeah. is in lots of ways. You mentioned when he runs off to the circus and Stromboli, I think, is the character who's the head of the circus. Christoph Waltz, I thought, was brilliant voicing yeah, yeah, him. Yeah. He's he's a caricature villain. Yeah, uh, and I, you know, it's funny because when I started watching, I was like, oh, I, I usually check who the voice characters are. And I was like, I didn't do that this time. And then I went back and I went, of course, it's Christoph Waltz. Mm. Of course it is. It's something that's set in Europe in the war and they need a, they need a villain. It has to be him. And he's so good at that yeah. character. You know, you wouldn't pick anyone else for that role. He's absolutely brilliant. But you know what I found really weird about it was David Bradley as Geppetto. Yeah. Like, I think if you're a Game of Thrones fan, it's hard for you to see him anything other than being the villain in Game of Thrones. Yeah. And then to be this kind of really grief-stricken character who totally loves his son and is completely lost without him. It took me a few minutes to reset on that. To mm. be like, okay, he like he's not going to kill everyone else. Yeah. That just reminds me when you talk about Geppetto being grief-stricken, and I mentioned how just, you know, he, he looks botched, this Pinocchio or, 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 or even, because he makes him in his workshop in a drunken grief-stricken rage like he he decides to do it one day when he's missing his son so terribly he goes into the woodshop and just as though he's been drinking wine all day and hacks up this Pinocchio like it's really quite graphic and disturbing I, I found that bit really disturbing as well like that, that's what I was I actually talked to my husband about this morning I said it's very because it's like I don't think you should shy away from showing grief to children mm. and what, you know, death. And yeah. I don't think you should exclude that from their lives and talk about it and stuff like that. I think it's important to talk about those things. Mm. But I definitely feel like the next level of grief that you have here, like he is a drunk mess that's sitting in front of his son's grave, yeah. crying every night. And he, there's nothing for him to live for anymore. Yeah. I wonder, is that a bit of a, a, a jump too far for children to be watching i also meant to mention that it's stop motion so it's yes. it, it's, it's quite difficult to 
I don't know, feel empathy for the characters a little bit. I felt like they were, it's not as cuddly as Disney. Of course it's not. It's meant to look, you know, it's meant to look a certain way. But definitely I felt like they were very hard looking characters because of the stop motion, you know. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. Now on the side of the lighter side of things, not that it's light, but there are adventures. I mean, he joins the circus. There's the belly of the whale and all that. So there is a a rip yarning adventure in here as well as all the darkness. And when he joins the circus and he has to perform. It's important to say that as well, that it's not just two hours of unrelenting grief with a wooden boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. God, nobody would be watching it then. But I have to say, I found that bit in the middle a little bit, I felt like you could have taken some time out of it. My concern about it, this film has been in the works since, what, 2007. Mm. Del Toro has been dying to make Pinocchio for a long time. He couldn't get it off the ground. They couldn't get money for it. Netflix eventually came in. He needed another $35 million to get this. They only really started working on it in 2017. It was a long time in the works. I always worry about directors and their passion projects being too close to something. And sometimes I think you need a good editor to go, you know what, you need to take about 10 or 15 minutes out of the mm-hmm. middle of that. And I think that's probably a little bit of what it suffers from. It kind of, okay. it goes under, but I, I did, I did really like it. I, I know it seems like I, I, I didn't like it, <laughs> but I did really like it. And there are adventures in it and there is some really nice parts and, but it just it, it at times felt to me like it was a bit of a jumble of everything that he was trying to get into mm. it, like that he was pouring into it. I mean, the songs, when he started singing, I was like, what's happening? This is a musical as well? Yeah, <laughs> the, the the music, because I really like this uh, for the most part. I, I thought it did sag a bit in the in the way, in the middle. And I get what you're saying about he threw the kitchen sink in it. The songs were slightly incongruous because they don't happen that often and they're very short. It was almost like he couldn't decide if he was doing a musical exactly. or not. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how I felt about it. So I was like, let's just put this song in here. Maybe it'll lighten the load. Of it. Yeah, <laughs> a little musical interlude to get yeah. away from the grief. Yeah. Uh, it's One scene that I thought was really kind of profound and God, you know, you're watching a Del Toro kids movie. Geppetto's tasked with making a crucifix for the local village of a, of a hanging Jesus. And there's some very dark scenes when there's people staring up at this half constructed Christ that hasn't been finished because the church has been bombed. And like, it's like something out of Dostoevsky or something. It is. It's very, it's like, I found that bit really dark as well. And it was just like, and the crucifix was never finished. I was like, what if I got myself yeah. here? This is really dark. And also the, the character of the, the, um, I don't know what she, whether it's an angel or a demon or that keeps bringing him back mm. when she's talking about how you know I don't want to give too much away about the bit but he keeps coming back mm-hmm. um back to life and she says you know you know all the people around you will eventually die and like life is is finite and and you're just a bit like oh this is a bit I it, it's all I felt like I was sitting there at my jaw open a good bit because yeah. it, it it looks so spellbinding and there's so much going on in it and it is actually very fantastical. But I, I did worry about the same bits that you worried about, that it was yeah. just a bit like it was being dragged down by some of the stuff that was happening. Mm. So what would you say stars wise? Oh, I, I'm between three and four. I feel like I feel like as an adult, I'd give it four. And mm. as a child, I would give it three. Does that yeah, make sense? Absolutely. Because I was actually going to say, I think it's a three and a half. Like I really admire the ambition of it and that it's such him trying to go his own road. But at the yeah. same time, it, it sags a bit. And, and if it's aimed at kids, it may be just a smidgen too dark for children. Yeah. You know? yeah. And there's a lot, there's loads. Like if you were to watch that again and actually write everything, write everything down, there's a lot of imagery in that. Like mm. the crucifix thing that you were talking about at the start 
compared with the crucifix at the end. Mm. Like there's a load of stuff that ties together. There's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of life. There's so much more going on in this film. I don't know if it's necessarily a kid's film. I think there's yeah. a lot in there for adults as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's three and a half from Sue Murphy and from me for Pinocchio. The correct title of it is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. So keen, it seems, is he to have people know that this is very much his vision. And it is very much his vision. It is about as far from Disney as as you can get. Sue Murphy, lovely to have you back in the tent. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sue Murphy there talking to me about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. And that's the exact title of it, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which is available on Netflix from Friday, the 9th of December. So whenever you're listening to this show, be it on the radio or on podcast, it is there now for your viewing pleasure. Well worth a look. An intriguing, an intriguing movie. Not without its little flaws, but, but intriguing. Up next, the associate editor of Sight and Sound on the much-talked-about list of the greatest movies. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now there was huge interest and indeed some consternation last week in the film world where Sight and Sound published their new Greatest Films of All Time list, which is only completed every 10 years. What perhaps garnered the most attention was the fact that topping the list for the first time ever was a movie from the 70s directed by Ackerman called Janine Dealman, 23 Quad de Commerce, 1080 Brussels. And I'm butchering that, so my Apologies, pushing Alfred Hitchcock's vertigo to second place and Orson Welles' Citizen Kane to third. Sight and Sound is the Bible for many film lovers and it's the magazine of the British Film Institute. So there is a lot of weight to be placed in this poll, I would suggest. I'm delighted now to be joined by its associate editor, Kieran Corliss. Kieran, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you, uh, John. Thanks for inviting me on the show. So listen, let's get straight to the end, so to speak. The movie, the name of which I absolutely butchered. I'm sorry. I'm just a poor boy from West Dublin who can't manage these things. I have seen it, though. Now, I haven't seen it in about 10 years. But will you just remind people, or perhaps for a lot of people, tell them what the movie's about? Because it's quite experimental. It is quite experimental, yeah. It was made in 1975, as you said, by Chantal Ackman. It's nearly three and a half hours long. It's um, it's it focuses on the it's set over three days and focuses on the daily routines of a Belgian uh, single mother, widow, um, and housewife uh, with a with a with a teenage son, um, and and we see in exacting detail the um, you know the just the household chores essentially. But there's another dimension mm-hmm. as well, because each afternoon on each day, uh, Jeanne Dielman, the, the main character, um, is also a sex worker, we discover, and, and takes in a, um, a client. And so um, basically, over the course of three, these three days, um, we start to see her very regimented routine start to slip a little bit. And this denotes a certain kind of unraveling in the character, and I, I, I probably won't say any more than that because I don't want to to spoil what happens for your for your listeners if they've not seen it. Sure. Now, the 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 uh, people involved it was over a thousand people, from film critics to filmmakers to all sorts of people. So you can't possibly uh, explain why over a thousand people voted for it. But why do you think it might be considered the best film of all time? 
Um, well, it's. I mean, I'll just say it was. It was actually. Um, it was. It was about sixteen. It was over sixteen hundred people who voted in the end, and and it was. Yeah. Uh, it was there were two hundred and fifteen people voted for this film, and that's what put it at the top. But okay. it is. It's a. It's a. It's a landmark film. It's. It's a landmark. Um, uh, feminist film um, at that mm-hmm. time uh, in 1975, Chantal Ackerman and also the actress in the film Delphine Zedek were very in, uh, very involved in what is now known as second wave feminism. Um, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, very much pushing back against um, a male a male dominated film industry. And not only in the way in which they approached the film technically, because this was predominantly an all-female crew, but also in terms of the film's aesthetics. Um, this was also the same year in which the theorist, uh, the famous theorist uh, Laura Mulvey, wrote her landmark essay, uh, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, which sort of um, unpacked the, the idea of the male gaze and the way this mm-hmm. the male gaze is structured and dominated cinema uh, throughout history and this film is, is is very much counter to that it's very much mm-hmm. uh, it's very much a female gaze and it's a, and it's a you know Delphine Zerig is on is on camera the whole you know the whole film and a lot of what this film does is it puts back into cinema um, a lot of the stuff that often gets left out on the cutting room floor. So that in itself is quite radical. Um, yeah. and, and this idea of also of domestic work um, and a woman alone, um, all these things are, you know, were considered, you know, obviously very important, but you very rarely seen on screen at that time. So it's, it's important for all those kind of reasons. But it, I should also say that formally it is incredibly disciplined and meticulous and exacting. The cinematography is, is really quite stunning. Um, uh, we, we don't have – there's no close-ups in the film. Um, we only – you know, and the, the, it's, most of it is shot in an apartment. Um, but mm-hmm. somehow the cinematography manages – despite the fact that it is a very domestic film and an intimate film, somehow – the cinematography manages to create this sort of epic feel to it, you know. Um, yeah, and that's and that's quite a well. You've seen it yourself, so you can you can testify to that. It's a film that really needs to be seen on a big screen. So um, yes, ideally, so yes. Um, you know these kind of very nuanced uh, these the, the, the details and the textures and these very kind of minute changes that uh, that happened to Jeanne over the course of the three days can register more strongly in that kind of an environment, the kind of black box environment. Yeah. Well, look, you make a great case for it. And I think you've certainly encouraged people to watch it possibly for the first time, I would say for a lot of people for the first time. Let me, I suppose, play devil's advocate to an extent, but but I, I, I have some uh, belief in what I'm saying. You know, one thing that is slowly happening, it's still not happening fast enough, is that women are being invited behind the camera more and those who've previously done it have been celebrated in a way they hadn't been before. Is this movie topping your list because women's time has come and we're almost revising our view of cinema? Or, you know, is is it going to be in 10 years' time, do you think this will still be topping your list of sight and sounds best movies of all times or is that too hard a question no not at all and i think it's a bit of both really i mean i i think into i you know obviously you can't predict what's going to happen in the next 10 years but i you know this film went from 36 to number one but 
in the previous poll in 2012, it was still there. It was still very much, you know, in the top 100. Should also say that, you know, we do a separate poll uh, with film directors and they, this this time round, put it joint fourth. Um, so, you know, it's mm-hmm. held in very high esteem, not just by film critics and programmers, etc., but also by film directors too. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the last uh, in the last week or so since we published the results about Me Too, and 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 for sure that's had an impact on this. But you know, um, Chantal Ackerman has been was making films for forty forty five years, and her you know her reputation and her stock has been has been growing steadily for for quite some time. You know, and and this film mm-hmm. um, certainly to a certain sort of you know. Um, to a certain you know sector of of, of cinephiles, if you like, um, it's it's kind of not news. I mean, everyone's everyone's known about it. You know, a lot of people have known yes. about this film, and it's and it's and it's you know, I mean, even you know, Paul Schrader said last week, although he, he decried the fact that um, the film had gone you know to number one too fast, there's, there's been no dispute that the, the film is a masterpiece and it is a, lang, a landmark film. So. So it's kind of a bit of a, a bit of both, really. I think, John. You know, to answer your question. And listen, when we go down through the list, I mean, what's wonderful about it is, if you know, since the last time, there's seven titles in the top 100 by prominent black filmmakers, yeah. uh, people from all over the world. It's a much less Western-centered list than maybe 10 years ago. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think we've, there's been kind of significant strides in that regard, but I still think there's a way to go. You know, I mean. It's already been pointed. It's already been pointed out that, that there are no Latin American films in the top 100, and that, and that really surprised me actually because I th- I kind of thought, yeah. that, but I, I actually thought with particularly with this, um, you know, people now being more conscious, as we've said about sort of you know uh, women directors, that someone like Lucrecia Martel, the you know the quite brilliant Argentine uh, director, I I kind of mm-hmm. assumed I kind of assumed that there'd, there'd be a couple by her in the top 100. But in fact, there are in the top 250, but not in the top. Okay. And I and I think also if you look, you know, there's we're still um, lacking um, African cinema, Arab cinema is you know is, is not present at all. So you know we've made some significant strides, and that's all. That's that's all mm-hmm. to the good, and we're very pleased about that. But there's still a way to go. So. Um, yeah, I think hopefully in the in the next uh, iteration of the poll in 2032, we'll see more films from those uh, those kind of areas. Okay, so there there is change, but not changed utterly, as Yates might say. And, and listen, I just to p- p- pick out a couple. Like, I mean, there, it's it's a fantastic list, and even in the top twenty, I just if people were to go home and set themselves for the new year to watch all these movies, like number five in the mood for love, one of my yeah. favorite films yeah. of all time. And just to point to people, there are you know movies in here that everyone knows, like The Godfather's at number twelve, The Searchers. Oh my God, what a exactly. great movie exactly. by John Ford. Absolutely. Absolutely delightful. So it, it, it's not just for the cinephiles, but again, let me play devil's advocate for mm. f- with you for a second. Mm. But we do a slot on my show every week where we talk to someone well-known, usually Irish, about their favourite film. Mm. And I've had to ban Shawshank Redemption because it's been chosen too much. The mm. second most chosen one is Some Like It Hot. And probably the third most chosen one is a toss-up between Goodfellas and Back to the Future. And mm. that's over the course of nearly four years at this stage. So 
People who were annoyed by the list were saying, you know, this doesn't take a, account of the huge force of popular entertainment. Some people live and die by Back to the Future mm-hmm. and the Shawshank Redemption. No, and absolutely. might be cheesed off mm-hmm. that those movies aren't higher in the list or on the list at all. What, what do you say to those people? Well, it's, 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 it's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, you know... We, <laughs> As someone pointed out to me yesterday that there's no there's no film by Steven Spielberg in the top 100, mm. and, and again that, that's kind of a huge surprise to me because you know there's a big constituency of fans out there, um, and I think you know amongst the kind of voters that we asked, I would have expected um, you know. So well, at least, so, so, I mean, a film like Jaws, I mean, if we're talking about landmark films, then Jaws absolutely is a landmark film, you know? I mean, yeah, you know, kind of changed everything, really. Um, you know, for good or ill, you know, you can debate that, but it certainly changed everything. So I was surprised by that. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the films that you've mentioned are great films. Um, who knows? I mean, the cards fall where they fall, you know? We just go out there, we ask, <laughs> we ask, we ask uh, you know, we actually asked 3,500 people, but we, we only got like 16, wow. 1,636 responses, I think it was. And, you know, this, but there are popular films in there, you know? I mean, there are films from every genre. Yeah. And, as you know, you've mentioned a few yourself, you know, Apocalypse Now, Godfather, you know, highly recognisable films that, you know, Hollywood films that, you know, have been, you know, did done you know, excessive box office, been very successful commercially. Mm-hmm. So it is a mix, you know, you've got, you've got sort of like, yeah. you know, more kind of like, you know, um, what you might call artist film, like Meshes of the Afternoon by Maya Deren. But, you know, you do have, yeah. you do have the, you know, your big, big Hollywood films. And, you know, of course, The Searches was one of those as well back in the day. Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. Just because it's old doesn't mean it wasn't popular. No, no, yeah. not- we could spend all day discussing, you know, the merits of cinema as a piece of art or as a popular entertainment or as somewhere in the middle. Unfortunately, we don't have time. And you're the type of person I could talk to all day, Kieran. But I want to just talk about sight and sound right. because, you know, I mentioned it's the Bible. I don't read it as often as I like, but I do get it. And it's it's wonderful. Will you just tell people, first of all, it comes out how often, where people can get it. And I suppose what its manifesto is a bit po faced, but what's its raison d'etre? Well, it's um, it comes. It's a monthly magazine, um, mm-hmm. and it's it's uh, published by the BFI. It's owned and published by the British Film Institute, so we're, we're mm-hmm. based in London. It's uh, it's very old. We celebrated as well as celebrating this poll this year. We also celebrated our ninetieth anniversary. Um, and wow. we, we, you know, we we like to cover a, a, a vast range of cinema, and not just uh, contemporary cinema, but we also look at um, the history of cinema, and we're very mm-hmm. concerned to sort of connect those two things up. You know, the past and the present. The present doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's also an international film magazine, so you know, of course, we cover Hollywood, we cover American independent cinema, we cover mm-hmm. British cinema. But we really try hard to kind of get out there to film festivals and to cover, you know, stuff from all over the world because there are brilliant films being made in every country and every corner of the globe. So that's really yeah. our raison d'etre, really. We're just out there trying to find what we consider to be, you know, the absolute best practice in cinema. Uh, both contemporary and historical, and just put it in mm-hmm. front of our readers for to, to to stir up a debate, essentially, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which which thankfully, precisely, is, is what this poll has done. You know, more than anything, more than anything, it else, certainly has. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And if for nothing else, can I just say the covers of your magazine every month are just delightful. Uh, if, if Even if you never get inside the front page, I always love the covers. You've heard me talking to the associate editor of Sight and Sound, Kieran Corliss, about their fascinating poll about the 100 greatest movies of all time. Kieran, a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me, John. Pleasure to talk to you. Kieran Corliss there of Sight and Sound talking to me about the list of the Sight and Sound's greatest movies of all time. A fascinating list. If you watched every movie in the top 20, you've probably seen some of them, but a lot you probably haven't. There's one or two I haven't as well. It could be a good exercise for you if you're interested in cinema. I'm not trying to give you homework or anything, but if you're looking for a, you know, when the festive haze ends and you're looking for something next year, watch the top 20 movies. There you go. Up next, poet Theo Dorgan on his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to the final part of Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to a person of note about their favourite movie. Theo Dorgan is one of Ireland's best-known poets, and he's a lot more besides, including a non-fiction writer and a novelist, and some of his books about long ocean journeys are fantastic reads, which I can attest to. He has a new project next week called Staging the Treaty, which is fascinating, but he's here ostensibly to talk to me about his favourite movie, and I'm delighted to say he joins me now. Theo, how are you? John, I'm very well, thank you, as I hope you are. Indeed I am, sir. Now, listen, I'm, you know, supposedly a movie buff, and I'm not going to say to my shame, because, you know, life is busy, but I haven't seen your favourite movie, so I have to make that plain at the start. So will you tell our listeners what it is and why? Well, you haven't seen it, John, I suspect, because to the best of my knowledge, it's only been screened in Ireland once. And that was when Mick Hannigan and myself brought it to the Cork Film Festival back in 85 or 86. Mm-hmm. The film is called Come and See. It's quite one of the most terrifying films I've ever seen in my life. It's set in Belarus in 1943 during the Nazi occupation. And essentially it tells the story of two young people who get swept up with the partisans and find themselves going through one horror after another as the Nazis sweep through Belarus, burning and destroying over 600 villages. Mm. So obviously, you know, it's like saying water is wet. Clearly a a very grim movie in some ways, but is there light and shade? Is there redemption, for want of a better phrase? There is absolutely no redemption whatever in it, John. It's one of the most powerful anti-war films I've ever seen. It's brutally realistic and sometimes mm-hmm. quite surreal as the pressure of reality gets too much for Fleora, who is the central character, um, and Glasha, with whom he falls in love. Um, I suppose you'd say there is a kind of redemption in that Fleora and Glasha make it through the war, but deeply traumatized, but still together. Um, they will never... Um, lose the memories of the things they've seen, nor will any viewer. Mm. The film was made by a man called E.M. Klimov, and it took him eight years to get permission from the, the censors back in the USSR yeah. to make the film. Um, he never really made a, 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 power, a great film ever after. He never made any films long after. Mm. When I met him, he was um, meant to be filming Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, Okay. And where the devil comes to St. Petersburg as a, in the form of a giant cat. I remember asking him, how are you going to do the cat? 
He said, with great difficulty. <laughs> so he was a man with a sense of humor, but this is, as I say, it's one of the darkest, most visceral, most terrifying films about war and against war that I've ever mm. seen. Okay, so it's it's come and see, and again, maybe this sounds slightly cliched and obvious, but are there horrific parallels to what might be going on in certain parts of the world today, or I suppose are, are they just fr- freestanding things, and that's for us? To well, the territory of Belarus is very like the territory of Ukraine, and mm. of course, um, all war is horrific and grim. Mm. Um, I don't think anything is happening on the same level of bestiality and horror as what happens in this film. Um, you know, to take an instance, um, Flora's village, all of the men and women and children of the village are gathered together into the village church, which the Nazis then set on fire. Mm-hmm. And they burned the population of the village alive. If, you know, they throw petrol bombs into it and a machine gun through the wooden walls. So he's there. He's just, he was, he's thrown out the back door just before the assault on the church starts. But he witnesses all of this. And he has the horror of thinking that maybe it's because he ran off to join the partisans is why the Nazis arrived in the village. Mm. Um, you know, terrible things, as I say, happen in war. And you might draw parallels with, say, the napalm firebombing of Vietnamese villages. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, nothing directly parallel to what's happening in Ukraine. But we'll, it will remind people if they go yeah. and download it and watch it um, that you can't glamorize war. It is no, impossible sure. to. And in fact, it makes you faintly sick with this film in your memories. Um, people will feel slightly sick at seeing these um, heroic glamorizations of war that you see in certain films. Yeah. And it clearly sounds like it's had a long life with you from when you brought it to Cork in 1985 or 1986. So, uh, you know, that's uh, the thing, John, with a real work of art, a good poem, a good song, a good film. Mm-hmm. Once you've seen it, it, it never leaves you. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I have to say that, um, you know, I, I have comedies in my head which have remained with me with every bit as much force. Uh, I still bitterly regret that RT have stopped um, screening the Marx Brothers mm-hmm. at Christmas. Yeah, That's one of my favorite memories from childhood. Right, it's not that I'm particularly and um, gloomy of disposition or anything, but you asked me a film that really meant something to me, and yeah. I don't think I had, you know, by the 80s, I don't think I ever had a glamorous idea of war, but this would have rooted it out. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic choice. Come and see the favourite movie of Theo Dorgan, who I'm talking to. I want to ask you about staging the treaty, but but just en route to that, about Ooh. your life and times. You mentioned doing that in the 80s and, and bringing movies to Cork. Now, you're a small bit older than me, but... Pursuing a life of the arts, let's say, in the 80s, you know, and I'm not saying you stood up one day and said, I'm going to be a poet, but that's what you became. And, you know, there you were bringing, you know, movies from Belarus to Cork in the 1980s. Did you ever, you know, because of the financial nightmare that the 80s were in Ireland, have any doubts about pursuing a life of the arts be you know and i've spoken to other people like jim sheridan or or maybe someone like richard carney who who kind of came of age at the same time of you and the idea of like wanting to be a philosopher in a time when ireland was so kind of seemingly depleted of 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 reserves or have you ever thought about that but not really i mean you know there were times back then when you you thought about it very 
very hard when you were wondering where next week's rent was coming from. But you know, Albert Camus says, all things considered, a determined soul will always manage. Mm. And I think I've lived that all my life. Yeah. I mean, I've lived long enough, John, to my own astonishment that the state which I fought for 40 or 50 years is now paying me a weekly sum to keep breathing. Yes, you know? yes, yes. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it, it depends on what you want. I, I don't think I ever had any material desires or ambitions. Mm. A roof over my head, enough food, some degree of, some modest degree of certainty that you still have a roof over your head next week or next year. Mm. And then everything else, well, you know, what, what, what do we really want from life? You know? Sure. And if, if you have to sing, you sing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if that's what you're here to do, then sing. Yes, absolutely. And, well, you know, well I, I, we, 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 I have to say it, and there was hundreds of thousands of people going through equally hard times in yeah. the 80s as we did. But, yeah. um, you know, most of them um, had far sadder experiences than I had because, you know, I, that was my initiation, John, into what I sometimes call the pauper jet set. It's one of the peculiar compensations of the artist's life that you mightn't have a shilling to your name and then you're invited to Moscow to the film festival. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The pauper so, jet set. I like that. I like yeah. that. Tell me this, uh, staging the treaty. So my understanding of this, it's going to be on next week, we should say, on Earlsfort Terrace. And it is literally, or you tell me, but verbatim what went on in the treaty debates exactly. in the Dáil 100 years verbatim ago. Verbatim is the key to it. Right. Um, I don't know what put it in my head, but a couple of years ago I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if people could relive the treaty debates as if they were there? Mm. And so I cut the script. The, the entire treaty debates in the transcript come to 440,000 words. And I cut it down to about 100,000. And I tell you, I wouldn't do it a second time because trying to be fair to everybody, to be accurate, of course, is mm -hmm. easy because you're using all their own words and only their own words. But to make sure that all sides, all points of view are fairly represented, um, that was tough. But I, I had the great blessing of um, being introduced to Anu, who I think are an extraordinary theatre company, and they jumped at it. They saw it immediately. And it's Anu are putting it on. Yeah, Louise yeah. Lowe, I think, is one of the great geniuses of contemporary Irish theatre. She's directing this. Okay. How she's keeping 46 actors all move all in the same play is absolutely, it's a, an astonishment to me. Mm. The difficulty, I'm afraid, is that it's sold out. We're doing well, I was it, going to say, you we're know. We're doing it over four nights in the mm -hmm. Kevin Barry room in the National Concert Hall in Earls for Tourists in the room where the treaty debates actually took place. Wow. So that those lucky 50 people each night for the four nights it's on um, have really, they're, they're being offered a chance to just jump through a trapdoor in time and down into history as it actually yeah. was spoken. But we are going to film um, considerable segments of it and that will go out on a, another station, which happens to be paid for by a license fee. Um, <laughs> That's OK. <laughs> it will go out on RTE on the 7th of January. OK, OK. We're, we're happy to plug them. They need all the help they can get. But listen, that sounds like a unique uh, theatrical experience, if theatrical is the right word. Well, and it, It's drama in the way, I suppose, do you know what? It only dawned on me lately. The nearest equivalent would have been the... The classical theatre of, of Greece, mm. 
Mm. When the city came to the theatre to learn its own history and to confront the challenges, everything that's discussed in the treaty debates is still a live issue. Partition, mm. who the republic is for, physical force versus parliamentary decision making, all of those wounds that have never healed, they're incredibly alive in the thing. I had a most extraordinary time putting the script together because I was swinging this side, that side, this side, that side, depending on the on the speech being made or the speech on the screen in front of me. Mm. It's a visceral experience. His favourite movie is Come and See, which I will be going to see and download soon because it sounds absolutely fantastic. There's no point trying to get tickets for staging the treaty because it is sold out as you would expect. Theo Dorgan, a real pleasure to chat to you. John, always a joy to talk to you. Take care of yourself. Take good care of yourself. Theo the Organ there talking to me about his favourite film, which was Come and See by the director Elam Kilmoff, uh, which I say I haven't seen, but it is homework for me. And my thanks to the very articulate Theo Dorgan. That's it for this week. Next week, I'm going to be bringing you kind of the best of the year. I'm going to be joined by Aoife Barry and Chris Wasser to look at the TV and movie highlights of the year. So I'm looking forward to that. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on News Talk. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage, please do so. You can email me, screentime at newstalk.com, or you can tweet me, John underscore Fardy. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Have a safe week ahead. Take care.